electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin on the Paycheck Protection Program that was intended for small businesses, but has inadvertently extended relief to much bigger players. I never expected in a million years that the Los Angeles Lakers, which I'm a big fan of the team, but I'm not a big fan of the fact that they took a $4.6 million loan. I think that's outrageous, and I'm glad they've returned it. The Coronavirus Task Force member explains how federal stimulus efforts are working and not working, how the government will review large loans before granting forgiveness, and how this crisis is unlike ones that came before. The businesses had nothing to do with this, so this was not bad business decisions like in the financial crisis. This was not over-levered real estate. The Treasury Secretary says this time around, government crisis response should also be different. Plus, Brown University President Christina Paxson on getting back to school this fall. Students are still learning. It may not be under ideal circumstances, but during this pandemic, nobody is working under ideal circumstances. It's Tuesday, April 28th, 2020. Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. The Paycheck Protection Program, or the PPP, uh, resumed yesterday with a new influx of $310 billion from the federal government that is intended for small businesses. For more on this right now, let's welcome Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin. And uh, Mr. Secretary, thank you for joining us today. Good morning. It's good to be with you. It's good to talk to you. You know, I was hoping we could start with a little bit of, of a dive into how you see this program, what's happened. There has been a lot of outrage out there as people found out that some big companies had applied. Uh, things like Ruth Chris Steakhouse, Shake Shack, AutoNation, some of their car dealers getting money in this program. And there have been some reports in the media about big banks putting those big customers first in line ahead of small businesses. I know that you've come out and said that this is really intended for small businesses uh, that uh, don't have access to the public market. But I just wondered if, if you've had a change in your thinking on how this should be used as, as this whole situation evolved, as the markets kind of firmed up a bit, or if this was something that you thought from the very get-go and you think some of these big companies and big banks are, are in the wrong and we're bad actors in this situation. What, how did this evolve? Well, let me first say I really think the program has been an incredible success. It's impacted over 30 million workers so far, and by the time we get through this funding, I think it will have impacted over 60 million workers, which, as I've said before, is about half the private workforce supporting small businesses. That was always the president and Congress's intention. And that's what we're delivering on. I think it, it, is, it, it is unfortunate that there's a small number of companies that have created a lot of publicity that took loans. I think it was inappropriate for most of these companies to take the loans. Um, it, it was clear there was a certification. Uh, we don't think that they ever should have been allowed to. We put out an FAQ clarifying the certification and saying that if they paid back the loans in two weeks so that we could reprocess that money, they would have no liability. Otherwise, they would have liability. And uh, I must say I'm encouraged by the number of people 
that have paid them back. I, I never expected in a million years that the Los Angeles Lakers, which I'm a big fan of the team, but I'm not a big fan of the fact that they took a $4.6 million loan. I think that's outrageous, and I'm glad they've returned it or they would have had liability. And let me just say, I'm going to be putting out an announcement this morning that for any loan over $2 million, the SBA will be doing a full review of that loan before there is loan forgiveness. So we will make sure that what was the intent for taxpayers is fulfilled here. But let me just say again, the program, overwhelming success, a million of the loans so far are for companies under 10 people. What do you think the impact has been in terms of trying to keep people employed? Have, have there been people who have gone and had to file for unemployment, or do you think that this program has, has saved a lot of the people from actually having to do that and have, has kept them in their workplace? I think it saved a lot of people, and I think for those people that are on unemployment, it's going to bring a lot of people back. Matter of fact, we're having a small business event at the White House today where, unlike the Lakers' stories, we're going to hear some stories of great small businesses who this really saved their business. And I can tell you, you know, the number of emails I get from people who send on the stories of a legitimate small business that was about to close their doors that is either keeping their people on or rehiring people or businesses that had to close their doors because the no fault of their own, the city shut down business is going to bring back those people. So as we reopen, these companies will have the liquidity to pay their workers. It occurs to me that not every part of the country is dealing with this equally. There are a lot of states that close down later than others, and there are obviously others that are opening up quite a bit earlier. Are any of these funds going to be directed to the areas that are, are most hard hit to try and make sure that the businesses that maybe have been forced to close for a couple of months already and, and could continue to see uh, a long closure, would, would those businesses be prioritized? Well, we're absolutely working on that, and, and we want to make sure that this money is, is getting to where it should be. And let me say I'm, I'm highly encouraged that the average loan size is coming down. Matter of fact, the average loan size in the backlog was less than 100000 um, I'm also encouraged where I'm on a call every day where we have over 100 CDFIs that are making loans. We think we're going to increase that to 400 so particularly in communities that have been hardest hit that we make sure that they get that money. And we're going to do what we need to do to make sure that everybody is treated fairly in this program. Mr. Secretary, um, what do you tell people who say, look, some of these big companies maybe should or shouldn't have, have tried to get this money, uh, but do you blame the banks, the banks that issued uh, these loans to them, given the rules that you had spelled out, or were the rules themselves uh, not clear enough? The rules were very clear, but let me also say the certification was a certification by the borrower. And one of the things we did is we wanted to make it very easy. The banks were really middlemen here, and the banks were, were not required to do the diligence. I really fault the borrowers who made these certifications. Now, you know, there were some banks early on who put things up on their website and prioritized their customers. We immediately told them that was wrong. They took it down. So, you know, I want to be very clear. It's the borrowers who, who have criminal liability if, if they made this certification, and it's not true. And as I said, we're going to do a full audit of every loan over $2 million. This was a program designed for small businesses. It was not a program that was designed for public companies that had liquidity. Uh, again, the certification was very clear. 
in saying that if people had other sources of liquidity, they could not take this loan. Right. Uh, Mr. Secretary, though, what, what do you say about those larger companies that may be returning those loans, but the true effect of it is that they're going to continue to furlough employees to the degree that this is an employment for all program? Um, you know, Shake Shack is, is not necessarily going to now put people back on the on the payrolls, whereas had they had access to some of these loans, if you felt that they were uh, properly eligible, um, despite whatever liquidity you think they might have, they may decide as a business decision not to bring people back, whereas a lot of the smaller companies who would have access to this would bring people back knowing that they'd get the loan ultimately forgiven and would keep people in their jobs. Well, again, let me just be clear. The purpose of this program was not social welfare for big business. The purpose of this program was to help small business. It's a small business program, and it was meant for small businesses that didn't have liquidity. Now, there are a lot of big businesses who are doing the right thing in keeping their people on the payroll. Some of them are cutting their their payroll a little bit in terms of not paying people as much, but there's plenty of businesses that have been impacted by this that are doing the right thing for their employees. And again, every business has to decide what they want to do. Every business owner has to decide. You know, if, if you're a private equity firm, if you're a, a, a venture capital firm and you want to support your companies and you want to support your employees, I would expect most of them that have the liquidity will support it. Obviously, there are businesses that were terribly impacted by this where people can't do that. But, you know, I, I want to commend many businesses are doing the right thing for their employees. And this business, this small business, again, we've impacted 30 million workers that would not have otherwise been able to be paid because 50 percent of our economy is truly small businesses. Right. And, and Mr. Secretary, the other question I get asked all the time, I'm curious if you do, too, how this bailout differs or is similar to the TARP bailouts after 2008 and whether taxpayers ultimately are going to get paid back as they did after 2008, given the grants that are involved uh, and the loan forgivenesses that are involved, can you imagine a scenario where taxpayers actually get their money back in the traditional sense of people paying these loans back and getting interest for it? Well, this is a completely different situation than the financial crisis. I mean, this is a situation business had nothing to do with this. This was the fact that the silent killer, this virus showed up in the economy that that we had to close down major parts of our economy for health reasons. And really, uh, the businesses had nothing to do with this. So this was not bad business decisions like in the financial crisis. This was not over-levered real estate. So in this program, there's a very significant part of these programs that are grants, as in the PPP. There's enhanced unemployment insurance, which is meant to protect workers that got laid off by companies. There's our direct deposits. We're over 100 million payments of direct deposits and checks and now sending prepaid debit cards. So we want to get those all out to people. So this is unprecedented liquidity being pumped into the system. Now, there is a component of this which, uh, where we can work with the Fed, which is an investment to support lending facilities, uh, we, we made loans. We're in the process of making loans to airlines, national securities. On those, I do expect we'll get paid back. But a big component of this is an investment in the U.S. economy, in U.S. workers, to support them through this difficult time that they had nothing to do with. 
Uh, Mr. Secretary, let's talk a little bit about the, the states and municipalities that are also struggling and have said that they need the money. We, we spoke with uh, New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy yesterday, who said that he had some productive com uh, conversations with you over the weekend about what that money can and can't be used for. And let's uh, just use New Jersey as an example. They say that they're going to run out of cash in four to six weeks if they can't use some of that federal money for other things than what they feel like they're allowed to right now. Where, where does that stand and how should these states and municipalities be thinking about this? Well, I've had multiple conversations with Phil, and I'm glad he characterized them as productive. I've also spoken to many other governors. I've participated with the president and vice president on video calls with the governors. Uh, as you know, there was a, a chunk of money. It's now all been sent out to the states and the cities to cover them for coronavirus expenses. And again, we've been clear that to the extent people had to use police to enforce uh, coronavirus issues, public safety, things like that, that they could allocate that money to the coronavirus issues, but that this was not about lost revenues, and that's the way the bill was written. Um, we've also worked with the Federal Reserve. I think you saw yesterday expanding the Federal Reserve facility to states and cities for liquidity problems, because we know just as we pushed back tax revenues, they did, which will deal with the liquidity situation. And I think, as you know, uh, the president said that, you know, we'll have a debate at Congress in, in the House and the Senate to consider this issue going forward. But, uh, you know, there, there, are, there are issues. This isn't going to be just a federal bailout of the states. On the other hand, there will, this will be an ongoing discussion. Mr. Secretary, uh, there's been a raucous debate about whether the Federal Reserve should buy stocks. What do you think? Uh, I'm not going to specifically comment on what the Federal Reserve should or shouldn't do in the future, but I would say I think that's highly unlikely. Mr. Secretary, just uh, quickly going back to the, to the issue with the states, I understand that some of these states have gotten a little piggish. I've heard about the president of the Senate in Illinois asking for, I think, $10 billion to fail out the, bail out the pension fund that's been underfunded for decades there. That seems ridiculous. But what do you think personally about the idea about whether the state should be allowed to use those funds from a lost revenue perspective in terms of trying to keep teachers on, in, try, in terms of trying to keep firemen or uh, policemen on, on the job as we continue to look at these states that have been shut down and hit the hardest. Is that fair in your choice? I realize that's not the way the bill is written, but would you advocate for the states to be able to use the money that way? Well, as you said, in, in the two extremes, I think that states that were mismanaged you know, this shouldn't be a bailout of states that were mismanaged because of a coronavirus. I would also say states that had specifically large expenses as a result of the coronavirus, like New York and New Jersey, I think it was the right thing that the federal government gave them money for the coronavirus expenses. Um, the, the issue about lost revenues is something that needs to be debated and discussed in the House and the Senate. I think, you know, every single one of these bills we've done has been done on an overwhelming bipartisan uh, support. Um, in, in the Senate, the last two times, you either had a 96 to 0 vote or you had it by unanimous consent, which was, again, everybody supporting it. So th these will be discussions we'll be having with both the House and the Senate. Secretary Mnuchin, want to thank you for your time today. We do appreciate it. Thank you. Next on Squawk Pod, Brown University President Christina Paxson. What it will take to get classrooms back in business. 
Testing is essential. If we don't have access to relatively inexpensive, rapid testing, it will be very, very difficult to bring students back. We'll be right back. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Squawk Pod with Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Here's Becky. As governors outline plans to reopen parts of their economies, colleges are trying to figure out ways to reopen their campuses. In a New York Times op-ed piece, the president of Brown University says that there is a way to do it, but it won't be easy and stresses the importance of higher education to the U.S. economy. Joining us right now to talk more about it is the president of Brown, Christina Paxson. Christina, thanks for being here today. Thanks very much for having me. Let, let's talk about what happened, because colleges were some of the very first to close down, to send students home and to say that they would not be coming back this year. Um, obviously, it's a difficult decision to make. But why are you um, convinced that this is what we need to do right now, reopen for the fall? Well, uh, thanks. Thanks. Very good question. You know, when we closed in the spring, uh, didn't close, but asked our students to go home and, and start remote learning. Uh, you know, it was one of the hardest decisions we ever made, but we felt it was right for the health and safety of our students. And we're at a point now where the public health system is, is improving. We're getting more testing. The tracing ability is coming back online. So I think if we plan very, very carefully, we will have the opportunity to safely reopen our campuses in the fall. And we have to try. And no guarantees, but I think it's essential for American society and the economy uh, to get us back on track. President Paxson, there are probably a lot of parents trying to figure out if, if it's going to be, A, safe for their children, but B, worth the investment. Um, what happens if you go back to school, they've made this payment that they give to you, if kids get sent home again to tell them that they're going to be learning from home? Are there any refunds that get sent out? Do you get any money back for room and board or for the quality of education that you're getting at that point? So, so we, like many other universities, gave uh, partial prorated re refunds of room and board, which, which seemed like the right thing to do. Uh, not tuition, though, because students are still learning. Uh, it may not be under ideal circumstances, but during this pandemic, nobody is working under ideal circumstances. And the value of their degrees, I don't believe, are diminished in any way. Again, if I was a parent considering sending my student there, uh, my child there, I would be thinking, first of all, Maybe it's safer for kids who are younger because we haven't seen as many cases with students. But what happens if they bring that back to me? Because they're going to be meeting with other students from around the country and around the globe. They're going to be in very tight conditions. And, and secondarily, why wouldn't I just go ahead and defer this year to make sure that my student actually is more likely to get the full uh, on-campus experience that I, I would want to be paying for, that I would want if I'm paying that tuition? Right. So, so that's a good question. And I think, you know, every family and every student is going to have to make this decision for themselves. And certainly if students are at elevated risk for health problems, they may not want to come back to campus. And that's probably the right decision for them. Uh, but, you know, I, I think that 
the students I've talked to are dying to get back to campus. And the last thing they want is to spend another year sitting in their parents' houses or learning remotely. So if the appropriate safeguards are in place, if we can get them there, if we're confident that we can uh, maintain the, the adequate levels of safety, I think students will want to return and I think their families will want them to. That's what I'm hearing. Christina, is Andrew Sorkin here. I, I, wanted, I, I mentioned your op-ed uh, in yesterday's program because it fascinated me. A lot of other educators are looking at what you're doing or at least saying you're planning to do to try to figure out whether it's doable for them as well and what it means to education, not just in higher education, uh, but K through 12, uh, given some of the stringent requirements that you're planning to put in place. So the question I, I was going to ask you is about testing. Part of your whole uh, plan is about testing. How are you going to get access to those tests? Uh, how much is that going to cost you? Do you think what you're going to be able to do is going to be scalable across the entire education complex? That's a, that's a really good point because testing is essential. If we don't have access, and when I say we, I don't mean just Brown, I mean higher ed writ large, doesn't have access to relatively inexpensive, rapid testing, it will be very, very difficult to bring students back. So I think that's a, that's a national priority, should be a national priority uh, for, for but colleges you are, and universities. Have, have you already gotten access to tests? Meaning, do, no, we're do, working do you on have that. a plan in place with an Abbott or with a somebody who's going to get those tests to you? We, we don't have a plan in place yet. We're exploring a number of different options. And the other thing that's interesting to note is that the testing technology is evolving every week. You know, so reports have come out this week about great innovations right. in uh, rapid saliva testing, which promises to be cheaper and uh, less invasive. So, you know, we're, we're, we're looking at different options, but I think we know that we have to wait until the technology and the science moves a little bit farther before we can make a final plan. Um, you've also said that uh, civil liberties in this case maybe be damned. We're going to uh, run an app similar to what's going on in many countries in Asia in this private community that is brown to effectively have your test on your phone and, and effectively do contract tracing digitally. Um, what was the response in terms of what students have told you about that so far? Well, that, that isn't quite what I said. What I said was that we would have to have between faculty and students and administrators a serious conversation about how much people are willing to give up to stay healthy. And uh, that, that's something we'll be talking with our students about over the summer, because clearly if they don't buy into it, uh, they'll leave their phones in their dorm rooms when they go out. We can't force someone to do tracing. But I think it's an essential component of public health. And our students, if they understand that by doing that, they're keeping themselves and their community safe, I think they'll buy into it. That's my hope. What are you going to do about bars in Providence and house parties? <laughs> bars in Providence, that's really up to the governor. I mean, I know that the state of Rhode Island is planning for a reopen and they're thinking very carefully about what kind of density they can have in restaurants and bars and in other venues. So uh, we have a close partnership with the state, and I think that'll be really helpful as we plan our reopen. And what are you going to do about people who go to a house party, right? Nope. Can't control that. I mean, I, I think what we need to do is have a really good public education campaign and make sure our students understand the risks and the dangers. We now have about 320 students living in residence halls and hundreds of students who are still in the Providence community. And so far, things seem to be going really well. They're socially distancing. They're being responsible. And we haven't had any any problems, to my knowledge. So if we can scale that up, do the education we need, uh, we might be able to get there. 
And I say might because there's a caveat on all this. If we don't feel like we can open safely, we won't. President Paxson, let me just ask you, how do you continue social distancing once the full uh, student body comes back and returns? I mean, would you still have people who would have roommates, maybe roommates they don't know their freshman year? Would would you still be sitting side by side in, in, a, in a lecture hall or would you try and space that out? How, how would it work? So, so the, these are things we're, we're sorting out right now. And I, I think the points you raise are really good, that depending on the, the conditions that are in evidence in, in September, how much social distancing is still needed is going to be really important to look at. It may be that we have to de-densify our campus and have every student in a single room. Maybe, maybe not. We'll, we'll figure that out as we go forward. Uh, I think it's probably very likely that large lecture classes will still be done in sort of flipped mode where students watch the lecture on their screen and then they have small discussion groups where they talk about the material. In some ways, that's a great educational experience anyway. So we'll have to make accommodations in how we teach and we're going to have to make sure that we protect our faculty and our staff. Uh, they're the ones who are at the highest risk of serious complications if they become ill. President Paxson, I want to thank you for your time. Christina Paxson, again, is the president of Brown University. Thanks. Thank you very much. Squawk Pod will be right back. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. That's the show for today. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern and subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Comments, questions, want to say hi? Tweet us at Squawk CNBC. Leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts and keep listening. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.